from New Orleans, welcome to Questions from the Waiting Room, a show that makes uncomfortable concepts easy to talk about. Dr. Nick Pajic, a practicing psychiatrist, will be your host and your guide as we dive deep into the human experience. Welcome to session two of Questions from the Waiting Room. It's Monday night, people. So what's going on, David? Uh, not too much is going on with me. Yeah. Had a long weekend. I'm pretty tired, but you working a lot. Into it. Working a lot. Yeah. Just yeah. A lot of 6 a.m. shifts that don't end well. You're making cocktails at 6 a.m. again. Yeah. People, you know, they drink a lot in New Orleans. Really? <laughs> All the time. Well, most of them haven't gone to bed. They'll just come in. And They'll continue. come in after. They'll, they continue the partying. That's cool. Yeah. It's not. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what you got? for me this week yeah well i have another personal question for you this week a personal question yeah david how dare you i know i'm sorry it's shameless um do you have any deep fears do i have any deep fears hmm i fear sometimes that uh my practice uh will fail you know that where i'm seeing all these patients and that i'll screw up or i won't do a good enough job um, that's probably the thing on my mind most most of the time when I'm fearing stuff is just uh, making sure sure I'm taking care of people enough, honestly. And other fears are just like I fear about my parents parents getting uh, older and uh, having illnesses and whatnot. So that's actually one of uh, one of my fears. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, David, can I ask you a personal question? You can ask me one. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any deep fears? Um, is that the question? Yeah, that, that was, was the question. Okay, okay. Yeah, but I actually have a big fear of like a recurring nightmare almost of like waking up just with like a bunch of cockroaches on my face. Really? Yeah, but it doesn't freak me out so much that like I see one and I start crying. Yeah. I just like jump away, kind of thing. You know, I just heard something about um, the United States when they were terrorizing folks from uh, you know the war and terror, all that. Some of the uh, captives that they they put a gentleman in, or a terrorist, I should say, in a uh, a cage, and then put a the cage in a box. And he had a really deep fear of cockroaches, and they poured cockroaches. Oh in there. man! And that was one of the way uh, ways they terrorized. Basically him. And, torture. Yeah, and he and he begged and begged for them wow. to stop, and would give them any information that they he thought they would need to stop it. Um, I know I heard that the other day on NPR. Yeah, that's wild. Anyways, I hope that doesn't incite some nightmares. <laughs> no, I'm tonight. good. Yeah, you know. I just, yeah. I thought you were going to mention Fear Factor. Did you ever watch that? Uh, a little bit, but not really. They'd have to eat a bunch of live cockroaches. Oh, God. As part of getting to the next round. Yeah. Right, well, Maybe that's what started my fear. I don't know. Maybe I should start doing that. I hear they have protein. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of bugs are really good for you. It's all, <laughs> it's all just social construct that tells us we shouldn't be eating it. Right. So one day we'll be eating bugs. Sir, may I have the flay mignon? No, sir. On second thought, I'll have the cockroach. How do you want that cooked? Medium would be great. Medium would be great. (laughs) Thank you. So do you have any stories from this week that you wanted to tell us about? Stories from this week. So I went to a vocal coach named Guy Tem. uh, And uh, Guy was really nice. Uh, I went into his his space and uh, this was on Saturday. And I was really nervous because I'm kind of socially anxious, especially for singing. Oh yeah, and he had a piano there. He had two pianos, 
He also had the, a sagittal cut of a, a person's head, so you could see all the speech organs, you know, the tongue and the throat and everything and the brain. And uh, he was talking about how I needed to be naked to, um, and, and to be naked in front of him as a singer and really belt it out. And so I sang in front of this guy and yeah. I felt pretty anxious, but you know, uh, we're working on it. So people- That's a huge step. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, I feel really good about it and I'm really nervous because I'm going to be doing it weekly um, and I really do feel naked, but it's all to get Maybe better Maybe you should at. actually just get naked and do it. I, I would do whammy. naked. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just so for listeners to know, you know, I'm, sometimes you got to just be vulnerable to grow as a person and I'm trying to do open mic nights and write um, guitar songs and sing. So that's, that's what I've been up to. So da- David, uh, who do you hang out with? Like, what do you do when you're not recording our wonderful show? Um, not much. Are you a pot-smoking millennial, David? <laughs> uh, not recently. Gave it up for, for a week because I ran out of weed. <laughs> what, last week? Yeah, last week I ran out, which was a good thing. Are you serious? I'm going to go buy some after I get out of here. So. No, you can't, you can't say that on the show. <laughs> no, I, you know, I tell my patients I'm not anti-weed or I'm just pro-health. And a, and a lot of my patients smoke a lot of weed, and it's a you know it's kind of a battle to get them to reduce it or yeah, stop. You know. Definitely. Uh, anyways, do you have any stories from this past week? Um. Uh, well, something funny happened at work today, or not today, but this past weekend. Um. I was pretty tired because I didn't slept that much before, and I had to be in at work at six. Um. So I'm carrying this like really big bucket of Bloody Mary mix. Hmm. Um. And I like lose my grip on it and it falls to the ground. This is like probably like four gallons of just bloody like red tomato juice. Oh so it hits the ground and this huge wave of red just like comes up almost in slow motion. And we and there's like a full bar of guests and like a full restaurant. And it comes up and it smacks me in the face and then goes all over my like coworker's butt. And like and I look I look up and like I'm covered in it and he looks back and he's like did it get on me? And I'm like, no, dude, not, not in the least bit. <laughs> but it's all over. It's his butt. all over him, like all over his butt. And, and so he goes like the whole like eight hour shift just with all this bloody Mary mix all over him. Um, and then finally oh at the end, I'm like, by the way, I totally lied to you. Like you're covered. It, it looks like you put out your butt. <laughs> oh my god, that's pretty good. Um, but the one thing that I do learn from like a hectic shift like that when stuff like that happens. If you just look at what happened and just start laughing to yourself, like it just makes everything easier. Because in the oh, end, yeah. like it's not a big deal. It's just like no. a work shift. You're just serving food to people. Like it doesn't really matter. But right, people right. just get so overwhelmed. So kind of my go-to thing whenever I get overwhelmed, whether it's like at work or anywhere else in life, I just kind of like take a step back and laugh. I'm like, this isn't a big deal. So question one from the waiting room. I become very self-conscious and in my head, whenever I'm talking to someone I don't know very well. I have trouble focusing on the conversation and feel awkward. Is this a form of social anxiety and what can I do to not be so in my head? Okay. Yeah, that is a form of social anxiety, I think. Um, if you go to my website at atlaspsychiatry.com, there's a form uh, under, under the patient resource page uh, uh, called the Leibowitz Social Anxiety Scale. And on there, there's many you know, questions that you, where you can grade social anxiety, like talking on the phone in public, entering a room when other people are seated, um, or giving a presentation. So yes, it's a form of social anxiety, and what can you do about it? Um, 
when I have patients come to me about that, sometimes I use beta blockers. That's a blood pressure medicine that helps kind of settle your peripheral nervous system down and it works wonderfully for a lot of people. Uh, number two would be taking like things like Lexapro, Prozac, Zoloft. Those are uh, indicated for social anxiety and can really help as well. Um, third thing I would say is to do uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, we do that you know, here at the office and I refer people elsewhere for it. But that's when you analyze your thinking and how your thinking causes you to get anxious. And then uh, the other thing would be to um, it's just to prepare, if you're pre presenting something, something is just to prepare really well so you, you're not really nervous about screwing up the presentation for that reason. A lot of people, I think, are just underprepared when they're, when they're doing something like public yeah. speaking. Uh, but this case, the person's asking because... Yeah, um, more when they're having a conversation. Conversation, you know, I tell my patients to focus on what the other person's saying and to try to be in the moment and to empathize with them, um, to ask questions, you know, if there's a pause and they feel awkward that sometimes it's okay to have an, a pause and if you don't have much to say like it's okay and that most people aren't judging you severely and most people um, aren't are not going to um, well they're just not going to be as critical as you are your, yourself yeah they're more focused on being critical to themselves right exactly and to and to think that about that when you're meeting with people like most people are thinking about themselves and their own well-being and what they're going to do after they talk to you anyways, you know? Right. Like you're probably thinking right now, God, I can't wait till he shuts up so I can go, <laughs> you know, smoke more weed or whatever it is you do. You don't know my time. life. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But um, anyways, yeah, that's my answer for that. Yeah. I think also, I mean, I think I used to even have that problem. Mm -hmm. um, and then more what I realized is I was like kind of what you said, if you focus on what they're saying, because... A lot of times when I thought I was having that problem, I just wasn't interested in what the person was saying. Mm -hmm. So I was getting distracted and I actually didn't realize it, but I didn't want to continue the conversation. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just kind of like end it and go on my own way or talk to someone else. And I thought I was blaming myself for not being able to continue a conversation. But mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with like, if you like the person and you want to hear what they're saying, you'll be more, you'll be more present with it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then that's totally fine. Um, but it's not on you necessarily like not having something to say. It's just you not wanting to talk to that person sometimes. Yeah, right. That can, that can definitely happen. I can see that. I think just, I mean, the different topic is just active listening with people. Right. When I visit with patients, sometimes I'm just exhausted from working a lot or not sleeping that much or something. But I realize that uh, this person's talking about something really important to them and it's important to me that they feel heard and that I can really connect with them. So what else from the waiting room, David? Uh, so our next question from the waiting room. Sometimes I get strongly affected by dreams or nightmares. I wake up in a sweat or feel very unsettled after dreaming something uncomfortable. How strongly would you say are these subconscious occurrences affecting my conscious mind? So the question is, are the, are the dreams stemming from subconscious mind? Yeah, it seems like they're asking, like they're having rougher mornings maybe because they had like a bad dream and it's actually affecting like how they're waking up. Mm -hmm. So I guess they're wondering like how strongly like are they getting affected? Um, I'm assuming they want to know what they can do about it or mm -hmm. if there's something wrong well, with them or different. Well, let's talk about dream. So dreams are a complex thing. They typically, I, I believe, happen during 
REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And that happens about 90 minutes into sleep. And then you have recurring cycles of REM sleep. And in REM sleep, your body's paralyzed, so you can't move and act out your dreams. And um, when people dream something uncomfortable, it can be from either the, the residue of the day, uh, or they actually have something traumatic happened that uh, you know is triggering the, the nightmare. Um, and people with post-traumatic stress disorder can have that. But for like just normal, uncomfortable dreams, sometimes sometimes things pop up. Um, for if you if you're kind of anxious, like a low-grade anxiety happening, so uh, that can happen. And I think some of the topics within a dream, like I had a dream the other day that my teeth were um, cracking, and I was chomping down on my mouth, and my teeth were breaking. And I've had that a recurring dream like throughout, you know, my adult life pretty rare that it happens but when it happened I know that I'm kind of anxious and I'm worrying about something in this case I was starting to do some new things in my practice that I was kind of feeling vulnerable about so that's one instance people have dreams that they're being chased or they're falling those are all kind of probably anxiety related dreams and then the question is like well is it subconscious peeking out into your conscious mind in some respect and I think yeah the Freudians would say yes that there's something deeper um, like fears can be expressed in, in your dreams that maybe you can't consciously uh, know. Um, and so kind of a metaphor for uh, subconscious versus consciousness is like a, an iceberg and how consciousness would be above the water. And then the bottom part of the iceberg is below the water just to show the right. immensity of what that is. That's funny you, should, you talk about the teeth falling out or the teeth kind of cracking dream because I have a recurring dream. Um, like it doesn't happen that often, but mm -hmm. my teeth like... Will just fall out all of them mm -hmm. and i'll freak out because i'll it'll always be before some like big event not that it would mm -hmm. not suck if my teeth fell out no matter what right um, but yeah and then i wake up and i'm like yeah like i either went to bed a little anxious or something going on in my life that's a little yeah like irksome right now or unsettling in psychiatry practice if someone tells me they had a dream or nightmares i i need to know whether they're having ptsd or if they're just anxious it may mean to me that i'm not treating their anxiety well enough What's the third question from the waiting room? Yes, yeah, our final question from the waiting room today. I have so much trouble ending a habit. For example, I smoke a pack and a half a day, and I've tried to stop multiple times with no success. What can I do that will help me break the habit? All right, so habit breaking. What I would tell that person is to look back and see what they did to try to quit in the first place. So I usually have my patients log how many they're smoking a day, cigarettes, and then to wean down as much as they can on their own. And I usually tell them to delay their next cigarette or delay their morning cigarette. For someone smoking a pack and a half a day who has had trouble quitting, I would surmise that they're just having a lot of nicotine withdrawal symptoms at that high of a dose. And they need to kind of slowly wean down before we can earnest, earnestly get them to quit smoking. And I advise people to tell other people around them that they're quitting. And I also advise them to uh, get rid of all their ashtrays and stuff in their house and to set a quit date. And sometimes even to call the... Uh, the 1-800-QUIT number um, to gain support from like a, a quitting smoking counselor. Uh, you can find it on the web. So a lot of my patients haven't even, they haven't done those things. So before even talking about medications, they haven't done those things. Right. And then there's uh, Wellbutrin and there's Chantix that I prescribe a lot uh, that really help curb the urges to smoke. Really this 
we should talk about the stages of making a change or quitting a habit. Definitely. And um, those are, I'm going to geek out on you here for a second. Sure. Uh, it's pre-contemplative, contemplative, the uh, planning stage, and the action stage. Um, and uh, those stages people need to go through. And a lot of times I have people who, who show up as patients and they say, well, they're not really interested in quitting something, but I know it's harmful to their health. And so we'll talk about, I'll, I'll listen to what, how they speak about something and I'll know that they're in pre-contemplation and I will try to edge them into contemplation. Cool. And then I'll try to edge them into um, planning or, and then action. Right. And that can take months, that can take you know three sessions, it could take one session depending how ready they are for change. Hmm. Um, and I ask them a series of questions to kind of figure out where they are for trying to make a quit, quit a habit. So. Um, what do you think of the, a lot of people or a lot of articles online talk about it takes 30 days to make or break a habit? Do you think that's pretty true? Well, for specifically for smoking, um, we know that the nicotine receptors go back to their normal uh, conformation about two weeks after quitting smoking, Okay, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's fast. And, and I'm not talking about like using an e-cig or anything like that. Right. I mean like no smoking, no nicotine. Um, yeah, it's think, super difficult two weeks, but once they make it there, it gets a lot easier. Uh, I think so. I mean, sometimes it won't be that difficult after like three or four days, mm -hmm. but they just need to know that they can do it. Um, also, if your spouse still smokes and you have quit, you're going to be a much higher likelihood to relapse. Definitely. Um, there's also nic nicotine patches and lozenges that I forgot to add that a lot of times people don't even use those, so they haven't been able to quit. Uh, regarding just general habits, like setting up a new habit, 30 days to do that, um, I don't... I don't have information about that. It sounds right. Yeah, I think you may have touched upon this, but in terms of uh, finding like another person or uh, getting into a group that is all trying to, you know, going for the same goal of quitting smoking. Mm -hmm. Like I know at least for me, like if I'm trying to start a habit, like I'll ask one of my friends or roommates to see if they also want to start a habit, like stop eating, you know, quit like added sugar for a week. Mm -hmm. and, like if I have a roommate that's also doing it and I'm around them all the time, like I'll be much more likely to actually follow through. Yeah, to be held accountable and yeah. have that support. That community, yeah. Absolutely, that's a great idea. I think you have to have meaning behind changing a habit and really believe that it's going to do something for you. You know, like everyone knows that smoking is bad for you, but people still smoke. Right. Sometimes I think it's they need enough meaning behind it to make the change. And also just one psychology and how you think about your habit. Like I used to smoke and I quit a long, a, a long while ago, but I, I was out smoking in a bar and uh, I ran into a patient who was smoking in the bar and I had been counseling that patient about quitting smoking, although I just was kind of a social smoker. Mm -hmm. But at, after that, I realized like, if I'm gonna walk the talk um, and you know, talk about not using substances and really be health, healthy, live healthily, I gotta, I gotta do it. Yeah. And so that was one of my main reasons, but it took that moment to really maybe make me make a change, mm -hmm. although I had cut down a whole lot. You know? I don't know, are you trying to make any changes lately? I'm trying to start like a yoga practice in the morning. Oh, uh, really? Other than that. Yeah, that's what I was mentioning about my roommate. We kind of decided that we're just going to start doing that in the morning, just like a 15-minute thing after we wake up. Yeah, that sounds that sounds very healthy. Yeah. Maybe I'll come over and do some yoga and some tight pants. Hey, you're, you're welcome, to, if you bring the tight pants. Can I still wear my blue sport coat? That's fine, I guess. During the yoga? Yeah, I mean, it's up to you. It's fine. We could have a competition of like who can wear the most clothes and the most layers and then still be able to do the yoga poses. <laughs> We'll call it SupremeBinkramYoga.com. <laughs> .com, yeah. Something like that. 
ridiculous pictures of us in a bunch of That's layers. Yeah. I can get Zen in a blue sport coat. Why don't we move on to our... Fun psych fact? Well, no. It's, it's not, not fun. fun. It's not fun any longer. Ah, right. No, it's, it's our, our very terrible psych fact of the day. <laughs> um, there's 43 million adults experience mental illness in a given year. One in five adults in America experience a mental illness. And nearly one in 25 adults in America live with a serious mental illness. That's like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or major depression. And um, about half of all chronic mental illness begins by the age of 14. But it often takes uh, you know many years for somebody to get into treatment. Mm -hmm. um, I think we mentioned this before, but depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Yeah, depression. Not even other things. It's that's what it is. And about ninety percent of those who die by suicide have an underlying mental illness. And suicide is the tenth leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. It's the second leading cause of death in uh, adolescents. Wow, which makes you think. Yeah, so mental illness illness is a real deal. It's a really uh, a major problem in the world, and we're here to fight it. So I should yeah. mention a couple things too. Um, let's talk about some signs and symptoms of mental illness. Yeah, definitely. Uh, eating, eating or sleeping too much or too little, pulling away from people and usual activities, having low or no energy, feeling numb or like nothing matters, having unexplained aches and pains, feeling helpless or hopeless, smoking, drinking, or using drugs more than usual, and uh, feeling unusually confused or forgetful or on edge, angry, upset, worried, or scared. I have to say a lot, a lot of patients who worry a lot and I think their worry is excessive um, but they don't they see it as helpful because it helps them quote get things done um, but yet I have lots of patients who don't worry at all and they get things done just fine so anyways if you see those signs and symptoms in people that you know they may have something going on mental illness and uh, point them in the right direction to get help definitely so happy thought moving forward a question you should ask yourself this is a question I think is kind of neat is what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? Because everybody has this negative thinking about, you know, engaging in something new. But yeah. if you knew you wouldn't fail, what would you do? So I, I think that's a question for folks to think about this week. And then this is my favorite, one of my favorite quotes. This comes from E.E. E. Cummings. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. Nice. Yeah. Boom. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to this session of Questions from the Waiting Room. If you have a question or comment for us to discuss on the show, then email show at atlaspsychiatry.com. If you'd like to learn more about your hosts, Dr. Nick Pajic or David Miller, listen to other shows, or to consult Dr. Pajic for a mental health issue, then visit www.atlaspsychiatry.com. Music production is done by McWordna. To hear more of his work, visit the link in the description. Questions from the Waiting Room is committed to destigmatizing mental health issues and providing psychiatric education to our listeners.
summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822-828 and online 822-824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.